Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Tech Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio for 10 years. The number one Irish tech podcast bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as a show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you bang up to date with all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. First off on the show this week, uh, Niall Kitten managed to grab a quick chat with John Leamy. He's one of the guys behind the forthcoming Dojo Con, which is kind of like a massive meetup for young coders. And we love encouraging young people, especially when it comes to real practical languages. Forget Latin. Get into coding, kid. That's where it's at. Uh, here's how Niall get on with John. So if you can tell me a little bit about DojoCon, which, you know, at first uh, glance sounds like an offshoot of the Coder Dojo movement, which uh, I think is actually a, a fair enough place to start. Uh, yes, uh, thanks, Niall. Uh, DojoCon, it's kind of a global conference. Initially, it was for the Coder Dojo community, but in truth, it's for anyone that has an interest in tech. Uh, the focus would be on, you know, um, uh, showcasing the new technologies uh, for kids and uh, learning the new technologies in that space. So it's been run for about five or six years and uh, we are delighted to be hosting it in Kilkenny this year and uh, showcasing all of these uh, uh, talks and workshops um, for everyone to enjoy. So when you're talking about um, sort of the, the workshops and the other content happening uh, at DojoCon, what, what exactly will people be engaging with? So, so we decided to split it up into some teams, and uh, we have a team for like makers, codes, creators, sharers, discussers, and if you think about the make it ones, we have like you go into workshop, you create your own virtual reality headset, which you'll be able to take away. They'll show you a demo on some of the games and some of the business applications you could use with that. You could also make it with things like, um, you know, turtle stitching or little robots. And then if we think of things like code it, it's probably a bit more obvious. Uh, we have tools like Greenfoot to help learn in a kind of more interactive world. You have, you know, create your own animated stories. We have really excited to have um, uh, cool things to do with Python. You know, we have uh, Paul Barry there. He's the author of the, the Riley book on it. We have um, some mixed reality on the coded side. And then, you know, on the uh, cre- creators, we're, we're also doing some 3D. We're doing App Inventor. And then on the Share It, it's more discussion-based. But we have uh, very interesting talks on inclusiveness and on, you know, growing up balanced because obviously technology and children, uh, it can get a lot of negative press around screen time and that, and, and, and rightly so. But DojaCon kind of has shown the good side of technology with, with kids. It's shown the, the creativity and the imagination and, and that. So that's on Share It. And um uh, that's the format of it with, with those workshops, those, those six uh, uh, teams. So when you're looking at putting together uh, an event like DojoCon, to what extent is this sort of coming from the ground up? Are, are people working in the coder dojos going, look, this is what the kids are really interested in. Let's, let's sort of tailor an event slightly more around this. 
so that's brilliant. Uh, and I think you've exactly hit the nail on the head. Go to Dojo, the global uh, organization, you know, invites a club to 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 bid for effectively and host this. And therefore, you're guaranteeing that it's coming from the ground up. And there, you know, all of us that are on the organizing committee this year are part of the Coder Dojo Club in Kilkenny. And we're all mentors there. And we kind of know what the kids like and what they're using and how they work and how they collaborate and how they learn problem solving and working together and what's cool and what's not and and therefore when we go to start into creating a, a, a global conference you really are starting from the ground up and you're bringing what's on the ground and you're expanding on that and um, you know we, we we got a very energetic committee together at the start we've been a year in the planning um, and uh, at the start, we were very keen on having uh, more women in tech and having more a diverse uh, um, aspect to it as well. And I think that that's reflected in both the speakers we have and in the workshops uh, as well. And um, and it, it's taken about a year to come to this stage, and now we're we're really looking forward to uh, hosting it. And, um, and of course, it's not just for the Coder Dojo community; it's for anyone who's interested in tech and wants to spend the full day just looking at all the different technology platforms that's there. So one aspect we think would be a real fit is for the new uh, computer science teachers. And uh, we've been engaging with the Department of Education and helping promote that through uh, the SESI uh, uh, branch there. So just to, to wrap things up there, when somebody comes along to an event like this, um, what are they going to see? Are they going to be absolutely bombarded with ideas as soon as they walk through the door? Or is it going to be more of a softer sell? Yeah, I think it's it's certainly more casual and it's informal. Um, you know, anyone who registers uh, on Eventbrite for DojaCon, uh, they get their ticket. Uh, it, uh, they have to then decide if there's any of the workshops that kind of are interest, they're interested in or any of the talks, and they just select those. And when you arrive in the morning, you'll get your card with your schedule on it. Uh, and, of course, people are free to walk around um, all of their different workshops. There's nine different uh, rooms been used to host 31 different uh, workshop uh, areas. And they run all day from 10 until 5 in an informal setting. And, and that's very much the way that the Coder Dojo clubs are in any case. So they can expect just to uh, either attend some for 45 minutes to an hour if there's something they're really keen on or else just float in and out. Um, there's a strong emphasis on networking. So we have a general uh, open area just beside the main speaker stands. And then we have some um, some stands as well. We have... Uh, coffee docks and uh, some some uh, goodie bags and and things like that. So, we're we're it is a very informal day and a relaxed day, and people should just uh, enjoy looking at all the new technologies that are there and how they could be, you know, brought into either their clubs or their homes or their kids or you know if if people can't get into uh, kids' clubs, then it's a great way for parents to come along and see you know. Uh, how they might start and what tools they should look at to start with their with their kids, and uh, and that's on the DojoCon, which is all day Saturday. Um, but we also have uh, a social end to it, uh, and this has kind of come out of feedback from other years where people kind of want to hang together. So we have social night in in the local pub. We have an opening ceremony the night before, and then on the Sunday we have a hackathon for all the kids. 
Um, and uh, we have about 400 kids there on the following morning in the same location. And that was Niall Kitson chatting with John Leamy about Dojo Con, which is happening next weekend uh, from the Friday 19th to the 21st of October. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. This week, Niall has been chatting with the leader in VR who happens to be Irish. His name is David Whelan and he is a co-founder of Immersive VR Education, which we absolutely love because we love VR and it's a great gimmick. But when you actually apply it to education, wow, that's just amazing. He's done some great things, uh, Virtual Titanic being one of them. And uh, I personally love the uh, Moon Landing VR app because I'm into all things space. And that was amazing. And uh, I sat down and I had a great chat with David asking him why he believes enough in VR and virtual reality to go out and overload his credit card to start his company which thankfully worked out and also what he sees for in the future well david one of the things that impressed me about immersive vr training as a company was that in terms of history you were there in 2014 which is a full two years before the release of the oculus rift so you were to say an early adopter is something of an understatement yeah, I was actually one of the original Kickstarter backers for the Oculus Rift, and I got the very first, well, one of the very first development kits. Um, so I was very, very early to the game. Um, I was a web developer previous, and I was always really fond of technology and an early adopter. And as soon as I put the DK1 on my on my face, I knew straight away, like, this is exactly what I want to go into. And I was quite early. Um, but I started to get in contact with all the leading players in America, all the VR developers, I started a content review website called Virtual Reality Reviewer. And we were one of the very first sites reviewing content. And it got me um, really good contacts in the United States, especially in San Francisco, where most of the development was being done. And I pitched the idea for our first product, Apollo 11, to one of the developers that I knew quite well. And we kind of went from there. I think San Francisco seems to be the hub of VR going back since the 80s and 90s, really, when you know the technology either was vaporware or it was wasn't cool or it was just incredibly impractical to develop when you when you had sort of these 3D projected image cubes. So, where did um, at what point did you decide? Okay, it's it's time for this technology to mature. The technology is there. Uh, the vision is there. I think I can add to this. It really was that day. It was an epiphany when I put the DK1 on me and the first demo I tried was a roller coaster demo, a rift coaster. And I was, I was, I was amazed by how good the quality was and the latency. And it was my very first VR experience. And then the cost of the headset, which was a prototype, um, I think it was 350 euros. You know, and I said, really, now this is consumer level, um, pricing that VR should really, um, um, really come about this time whereas back in the 80s headsets were a thousand bucks and for a cheap well for probably the least expensive headset and then you were getting three or four frames a second and it was making people sick whereas this experience actually felt like a good consumer experience I think that's one of the problems people had with 3D in the home um, why it didn't break through uh, and 3D in the cinema which I think is, is fair to say is in decline at the moment that people just couldn't get over that perception that you know I'm going to get motion sickness from this and it just turned people off. Why do you think that barrier hasn't been there with VR? Do you think it was the, the positive word of mouth this time around? I think that with 3D TV and 3D movies and stuff, 
you can see the limitations of the technology immediately. So when you put on a pair of 3D glasses, you're still looking at a rectangle and these images pop out of the screen. So straight away, you know what the limitation of that technology is. When you look at virtual reality and you put on a headset, it's very hard to see the limitations because you're only limited by your imagination and you can interact in the world in in quite a natural way and objects look real to you. So we're only really scratching the surface of what this technology can do. And that's why I think virtual reality and augmented reality isn't just a fad it's really a new way to communicate with the digital world whereas 3d tv is just another way of passively absorbing um, standard um, images on the screen so when you got into content and educational content when it came to selecting your first sort of your breakthrough product if you will the the apollo 11 landing um what was the process there where did you go okay here's an interesting point in the history of technology and science that that we can exploit um tell me a little bit about the process I was very, um, so I wanted to be an astronaut when I was growing up and obviously being in Ireland there wasn't much of a space programme and the Apollo astronauts were heroes of mine uh, growing up so the very first experience I wanted to create was a space um, experience. Now in education, I definitely see in education as a huge opportunity. Um, a lot of people were looking at um, entertainments for the VR space but VR has been around for the last 30 years, but it's primarily been used in education. So NASA used it to tra- train astronauts. The US military used it to train soldiers as well. But now we have a consumer level um, price entry. So I looked at education and going, right, this is time now to bring it to the masses. So with Apollo 11, it's a universal story that's taught in every history book around the world to every student um, around. And it's one of the very few stories that has a positive outcome. So if you open up any history book, even in Ireland, most of it is about plague or war or, or, you know, stuff that's bad that's happened. Whereas Apollo 11 is something where the whole world uh, took notice. And really, um, that was a a real uh, optimistic time in the world's in the world's history. So that's really why we wanted to go with Apollo 11. And it was great as well that a lot of the NASA archive is public domain. So all the audio is is public domain. So we used real audio in the Apollo 11 experience. When you're in the spacecraft, you really hear Neil and Buzz talking. When you're looking at the switches and dials, they're all exactly accurate to, to, to the spacecraft because you can get the plans online. And we even went as far as when you're landing the, the spacecraft on the moon and you look out at the moon's surface that's the photo mosaic that NASA created for simulators so every valley and every crater you see is exactly what Neil would have seen when he landed and that's sort of challenge of our verisimilitude I mean did you have somebody from NASA sitting over your shoulder going yes no yes no pass fail no, at NASA directly. So we did get to meet um, some of uh, Apollo astronauts. We met Charlie Duke. He's the youngest man ever to walk on the moon. And he was on Capcom for Apollo 11. So we went to a museum. We had a prototype of Apollo. And we sat him down inside him. We filmed him. And uh, it actually went viral on YouTube, if you look it up. And when he came out of the experience, we put him in the seat, actually, that he was sitting in uh, 50 years ago. He could tell us exactly what these switches and dials should read and at what moment certain things happened. So we actually changed the parameters of the simulation based on his feedback. And then we met Al Warden, who was a command module pilot on Apollo 16. And he's actually in the Guinness Book of Records for the deepest spacewalk ever. So he got out and completed a spacewalk while they were orbiting the moon and the other two were walking on the moon's surface. And he gave us more feedback on what, what exactly the simulation should be. So it is very, very accurate. And I think that's the, the key word that you use there, simulation, when we're, we're looking at the Apollo 11 experience. But you've also been working with uh, the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland on a, a project that's very, t- very different in terms of interactivity. 
Yeah, so the Royal College of Surgeons, it was how to treat a patient uh, from a road traffic accident and you have to do a chest drain insertion. So typically the way they would teach the procedure for this for students would be they'd get a multiple choice questionnaire and they'd have to fill it all in, send that to the assessor. A couple of days later, then they get feedback. With the simulation that we created is we place them in the car as it, as it hits a lorry and then they're in the operating theatre and they have to choose uh, b- between life and death um, choices. And all the time that they're going through these choices, the application is recording how long it's taken them to make a decision, how many right decisions or wrong decisions have they made. And not every decision is wrong. Some decisions are better than others. And at the end, then they get graded straight away and they can repeat that over and over again. And it really helps them um, really embed in their minds the... The, the way that they need to do these procedures you know instead of just trying to memorize stuff off paper and that's exactly what we're trying to do with virtual reality it's give people real world applications or real world um, teachings for what they're going what, what to find out in, in, in the real real world to look at things from a slightly critical perspective, I mean, as as we sort of alluded to, VR is really going back 30 years at this stage mm-hmm. um, and we're talking about it in terms of you know reaching that uh, critical mass if you will that it it is entering the mainstream but what will be there to keep it there uh, are we looking at devices that will have to come down in price are we looking at the smartphone novel model that will have to grow in sophistication I and mean, where do you see the limits at the moment it's all of those so the headsets today are still two or three hundred dollars for a decent headset um up to now, the barrier has been with the, the expensive headsets, you need a really good PC to get a really good experience. But Oculus, who are owned by Facebook, have released a, an Oculus Go headset where you don't need a computer. But the issue with that is it doesn't have six degrees of freedom. So if you move forward in that headset, the world moves away from you. And that gives a disconnect in people's minds, and that can make people feel a little bit dizzy. Whereas there are new headsets coming out where you don't need a phone inside. It's a standalone headset, whereas if you move forward, the world will move closer to you. And they're the type of headsets that need to be $200 for it to really, really take off. But I think how this technology is going to be sticky um, quite soon is with industry and with, with education especially. So if you look back in the history of technology with personal computers, Back in the 80s, everybody thought personal computers were going to be fantastic. They're going to take over the world. You know, we're not going to have to work. The computer is going to do everything. But in reality, where computers came into their own was in industry and recording records. They came into education first, into corporations as well for design. And then they spread into uh, most homes then in the 90s when Internet came along. We're at the very same stage with virtual reality where it's industry and education is really where it's going to um, shine first. And then it'll it'll, um, become ubiquitous in most homes in the next three to five years. Do you think that's really the misconception there that the gaming's end, that the consumer space would pick up for virtual reality and run with it instead of, uh, you know, those more practical applications in industry and education? Precisely. So it's very much um, similar to personal computers again. So back in the 80s, um, gamers bought all the early computers. So they bought the Ataris, the Commodore 64s. They were using it for games. But there's only such a big market for that where you really need adoption to take place is in industry and education. And then people seeing the technology for how useful it can be, not just for uh, games and entertainment. Looking at the education sphere, um Again, there is that barrier of getting the devices into the classroom, but there must also be the issues of upskilling educators and getting the message across to them that, look, creating virtual environment in the classroom is going to help you teach better. It's going to help students learn better. Um, how do you get that message across with such a, a high 
well, barrier to entry still there? So there's quite a lot of research happening around the education space and it's shown there's an 80% um, better retention rate using VR as with some traditional methods. There's reasons why people go on school tours and there's reasons why people have physical objects to train with. But not every school or every student can afford to go on a school tour or if it's medical students, not all medical students can go to a high-end institute where they'd have millions of dollars of equipment to train with. All that stuff can be created digitally in virtual reality. And the platform that we've built, the the Engage platform, it's a tool set for educators to create their own content. So there can be a virtual version of you in Ireland and I could be in Australia and we can have this conversation as if we're sitting in the same room together. You could drop a dinosaur on the table and the platform can record everything that you do and say. It can record your presentation, it can record your objects and as soon as you give a class or presentation you can sit down from the point of view, view of the students and replay that over again. If you're happy with your performance you can publish that and sell that content for whatever you want. Whereas at the moment if educators want to create high quality content they have to go to a third-party developer and it could cost 50 grand, 100 grand to to a million, whatever whatever it is. Whereas with our tools, it's really they can build what they want. Looking at AR as, a, as something aside from VR, uh, I find that the barrier to entry is much lower because people are using their smartphones with it. But for some reason, it just hasn't clicked with people the, the same way or it hasn't caught the imagination the same way, even though it's more ubiquitous. What sort of killer apps are we going to have to see to make people sort of adopt AR a little bit more? It's not the apps. AR has to be wearable. No one wants to hold a phone in front of their uh, face for five minutes. You're going to get your arms are going to get quite tired. You know, it's a bit of a novelty at the moment. And um, what we are going to have to see is really good wearable devices. Um, Apple, I know, are working on advice at the moment, and there's rumours it'll be out in 2020. And where I see it happening really and taking off AR in a big way is you'll have an Apple iPhone, could be Apple iPhone 14 or whatever it is, in your pocket. And that will wirelessly do all the computing and transmit it into a pair of glasses that you're wearing. And that will be the AR device. And as soon as there is commercial AR devices available, we will support that with our platform and our, and our software. But it definitely needs to be a wearable device. It can't be something you hold, hold with your hand. What you're describing there actually has echoes of Google Glass. Do you, do you think lessons have been learned from that experiment? With Google Glass, it didn't really give an advantage over to having a phone. Um, really, it was just a small screen where you were looking at um, maybe some emails and you could take photographs um, with Google Glass on your face. They have learned some lessons with it. But in reality, the, the phone experience where you take out your tablet phone, that was still a better experience than, than Google Glass. AR is completely different. It's a completely different experience. It's a different medium. It's not something that you can get out of looking at a mobile phone screen when you can interact um, with digital objects all around you or if you're walking down the street and you can you can see prices come up in shop windows and give you um travel information or if you're if you're if you're getting lost somewhere instead of looking at a map on, on google maps you actually have a virtual person standing next to you and guiding you to where exactly you should go so there's there are things that can't be done on a phone and we're seeing projects like that going on in UCD uh, with HoloLens, for example, where you, you have people doing sign language concurrently with, with lectures. But when people are using AR as a way to interact with uh, with businesses, as you say, with, with special offers coming out of shop windows, if you will, there is that concern that wh- where is this data coming from and how is it being used? So do you think a greater awareness of personal data will have to grow uh, alongside technologies like AR? 
It will, but the world has changed radically in the last 30 years. So personal data for somebody of my generation, so I'm, I'm close to 40 years old now, is completely different to, say, teenagers today. They put their whole life on their phone, on Facebook, on Snapchat. You know, personal data to them means something completely different to our generation. So they share all their data. Every time they sign up on an app, it's uh, click here if you agree to the terms and conditions. And I hope that they are aware of what they're signing up to, but in many cases they're not. So I definitely think there's going to be a completely new set of laws about how we use personal data, as well as um, um, laws on how that data is distributed um, within companies. And you could see with um, there was quite a big scandal with Cambridge Analytica in the past few months. That's only really, I think, the tip of the iceberg. There's data being transferred everywhere. It's just a, it really is a matter of the EU and um, really the the, the world um, as as an entity to really get laws in place where data can be used in the correct manner. Returning to VR, just back to the core competency, if you will, um, we're seeing more projects coming from you in terms of, you know, the Titanic, um, the experience of flying a Lancaster bomber, these sort of things. How are projects being pitched to you now? Are, are you discovering niches yourselves or are people like the Titanic Museum in Belfast going, we've, we've seen what you've done with the Apollo, can you do something for us? Yeah, so those projects, the Titanic project is still our own IP. Um, so we decided um, in the company that this should be our really our next project. And actually our COO had a, a relative who went down on Titanic. So I had a, a large part to play in why we built the Titanic experience. With the BBC, they got to try Apollo 11. And they have a whole archive of interviews over the past 60, 70 years. And they came to us with this piece of audio um, from the Lancaster bomber that was recorded 75 years ago. And they said, can you do anything with that? As soon as we heard it, it was like, yeah, of course, you can sit in the Lancaster and we'll, we'll recreate history. So we get these very interesting um, pieces. So the way um, jobs are pitched to us really is we have educators contacting us from all over the world. So we're working with Oxford University and um, we've done work with the BBC, Royal College of Surgeons. So they come to us and if there's something really compelling, we really cherry pick who we work with. And we say, look, if, if we build something for these guys or we collaborate with them, those same tools that we build for this experience can be reused millions and millions of times for other people. And that's how we really kind of pick and choose what, what we work on. One of the interesting challenges I think you face as an Irish company is the fact that, one, you're an Irish company, and two, you're based in Waterford, which is a long way from San Francisco. So what challenges are you finding as an Irish company? Is there still the the talent vacuum out there? Oh, there certainly is. It's very hard to get good talent um, in virtual reality to, to work in Ireland. There's very few game developers in Ireland. A lot of people, when they get qualified, they go to the United Kingdom or the United States because that's where all the big game companies are. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to grab those people and bring them bring them back to Ireland. But we have uh, visited lots of universities and we've tell, said to them, look, these are the core competencies that we need. And they're training people in Unity, they're training people in the programming languages that we need as well. So it's we're starting to see people come from the universities, but we still have a huge gap. So we've, we're scaling at the moment. And we have six six vacancies right now today, and we're looking for PHP programmers even, you know, not just game developers. And it's so hard because there's so many tech companies in Ireland, especially in Dublin. Dublin absorbs most of the talents. But thankfully, building showcase experiences like Apollo 11 and the BBC experience and winning lots of awards and having the founder of Pixar um, on our advisory board is attracting really good talent to us. Uh, when you say that you're not getting exactly the sort of people that you want, you're... you're Definitely then on the lookout for people that perhaps might, that, that would have them, the, that mental flexibility that at the moment they're confident in PHP, but 
they can move on to unity. Um, how are you spotting people like that? I mean, are you going, okay, well, you've actually been able to solve this set of problems pretty well. You'll probably be good at what we need you to do. Yeah, so we say we have a web end for the Engage platform. So what they'll do is they, they'll work on the web end of that if they come in as a PHP developer and then they'll start working on bits on Unity. But we, we often test people as well. So if we're looking for a new 3D artist, we'll give them a set of five objects. And if they choose the hardest object and they go for it, and it looks it looks quite good, we'll say that's the kind of person that we want because they're very proud in their work and they don't mind challenges. And they're the kind of people that we hire. And then we can upskill them when, when they join the, the organization. It's very interesting. So it's, it's the ambition and the will to perform that's as, as important as the skills. Yeah. So even though I'm the CEO of the company, I hire very smart people. And it's not for me to tell those people what to do. It's for those people to tell me what to do, you know. So you have to really be confident in the people that you hire. And we we, we often get people who have great skills and great experience in, in, in the background. But if we don't think they're a right fit for a company, we're not going to bring them in because we're making products that we hope that people will love. But we need to make sure that the people in our organization love working together, you know, to make these products. Because if you have people who aren't uh, working um, as a team unit, it really shows in the end product. What kind of shadow do you think Dublin casts over the tech industry in Ireland? I mean, we've been talking to companies that are based in Cork, Waterford, Limerick, uh, Galway, and there is this sense that people are saying, look, there is life outside Dublin. It's perfectly fine. You can work, work remotely. But yet Dublin still is hogging the headlines and you've got clusters like silicon docks so as a company based in waterford do you find yourself having to push back against that um i guess myth at this stage we actually find it easier to hire people outside of ireland than we do to hire people from dublin and get them down to waterford um, i think people when they think of waterford it's a small little town they don't realize there's over 100 tech companies based in waterford today like it's a huge tech hub down there so we often like the majority of my workers are from the uk and america and we have about seven or eight Irish employees. But again, very hard to get people um, from Dublin. But once people come down, have a look at the office, see exactly what we're doing. Like we pretty much do what Pixar do. All down in Waterford, we do motion capture, we do facial scan, we do unity programming, we do full animation. Once they see the type of work that they're working on and they get excited about it, then they, they end up coming down. But it is quite difficult to get the, that person down for the first interview. So as the industry uh, expands then and VR goes more mainstream, what expansion plans do you think uh, you can see over the horizon? Do you, do you think you will move it more into London, more into the States, or do you think, you know, we can do enough here in Ireland? Our main technical hub will be based in Ireland um, all the time. So we do have um, sales hubs opening up. So we have an office in London. We have some people working in the United States as well. But the core technology is going to be built in Ireland. So I'm a very proud... Um, Irish man and I'm from Waterford that's why we're based down in Waterford and there's no reason why we can't do it in Waterford and I really like um, really like surprising people so I remember when I started the business first I said I'm setting up a VR studio and people are saying you're crazy and so where are you going to set it up it has to be in Dublin I said no we're going to do it in Waterford we got that done then I went to raise my seed round I was going to look for 1.3 million so no one's going to give you 1.3 million to make virtual reality stuff I got that done and then when we listed the company on the London Stock Exchange um, we were the first Irish tech company in 17 years to list on, on the Irish and the London Stock Exchanges when when we announced it first people were saying there's no way that can be done so I really like surprising people and overachieving and 
in Waterford, we're definitely going to be expanding and we have big ambition in the future. Those business challenges, um, particularly of uh, attracting investors, is very, is very interesting. Uh, looking at things from an emerging technology perspective, is there that sense that people are looking for the next unicorn, people are looking for the next breakthrough technology? Uh, or was it a sense that people were going, OK, there's still money in social, we're doing pretty well so long as the, the recruitment numbers are still up? As a VR studio entering the market at a stage before the headsets were actually commercially available. Um, I imagine there was a lot of scepticism. There was a lot of scepticism, but one of the key reasons why we listed on the market is there's companies in America and they're raising huge amounts of money and they're raising 30, 40, 50 million. There's even one company, Magic Leap, have raised $6 billion. Um, so being in Ireland, there's very few VCs that we can raise large amounts of money from. There's six or seven VCs in Ireland, really, where you can raise 10 million or more. But to get private money, it would take you at a minimum six months, but normally it would take a year to raise money. Whereas being on the markets, if we show our investors on the markets a compelling use case to raise 20 million in the morning, we could get that money in the bank within two or three weeks and it really keeps us ahead of, ahead of the game. And even right now, we're... If you type in education and virtual reality, you're going to find us like we're, we're, we're definitely leading the way in the education space at the moment. And when I was talking to the investors, we want to stay that way. And if you think VR and AR is going to be big in the future and you're looking for a bet right now, like how many people are going to sit in front of you um, looking for money today? And they invested um, in us personally and in the board as well. And when we could say to people, right, we have a really experienced board. We have the CEO of Virgin Ireland is on our board. We have the founder of Pixar on our advisory board. We have a guy who took a company from 25 million to 2.5 billion within three years as our chairman. They looked at, okay, these guys really know what they're doing. They have proven sales with Apollo 11. They have Titanic coming out. They have a scalable platform. I definitely think these guys are worth a bet. And that was Niall Kitson chatting with David Whelan, co-founder of Immersive VR Education. That's it for our show this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or listen to us each week online or Fridays at 5pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. On to next week, from myself Dusty and from Niall, thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com Tech Central